Let us this morning say one more time the Lord's Prayer. We want to memorize it, to utilize it. We say it together to pray it together. So on this Resurrection Sunday, let's say it. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive... Debtors, sorry, I messed that up. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And it's this ending that we're going to look at today. As I was driving to church today, I was like, okay, if I do this again, I think I'm going to go with the old King James because that's just, uh, that's what gets into my mind when I get going. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, and, and we can help you if, you if you need one, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 13. Verse 13. And we are looking, and before we, well, we'll do that at the end. We'll do that at the end. Uh, So, as we do that, we've just said the Lord's Prayer. It begins there in verse 9. And we're looking at the ending. And if you look in your Bibles, depending on what version you have, depending on what version you have, uh, that ending... For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever is in brackets. Okay, how many of you see that in brackets? Do you have that? Some of you do. New American Standard does. Others have an asterisk or a note in the margin. And so as we look at the final part of the Lord's Prayer, our question is this. Where does the Lord's Prayer end? Where does it end? And I want to ask this question. The question everyone should ask, is it Bible? Is it Bible? Is this actually there in the Bible? Um, You know the Lord's Prayer is not only in Matthew, but it's also in Luke. And Luke, Luke does not include this ending. And here in Matthew, it's there, but is it Bible? And so I've given you four uh, uh, evidences of that to think about. We're not going to go into that in depth. There's a lot of detail behind that, but I do want to mention it. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Bruce preached on the woman caught in adultery in John 8. And uh, so in our group, we talked about whether is that passage there in the Bible because it's in brackets as well. And uh, it was interesting because in our group, we had a variety of responses that some had never even known or realized that this was a question. Well, here's another one of those examples. This ending for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Is it Bible? Well, you look at your translations. I gave you a chart there. You can notice that it is omitted in these versions, and yet there's a note in the margin. In the New American Standard, it's included, but it's in brackets to let you know that it's not likely the inspired text, and there's note in the margin. In the New King James, it's included, but it has a note in the margin. And then in the King James Version, it's included, there's no note, and you would never know there was a question about this ending. That's the translations. The editors that put together translations are doubtful that it was part of the original autographs. But what about the text? 
The Bible itself is, is based on the original autographs that were inspired when the apostles wrote, inspired by God, and then multiple copies or manuscripts were made. And in these texts, the evidence is somewhat divided among the manuscript copies. But here's the key. The earliest copies that we have of the Gospel of Matthew, around 200, 300 A.D., do not include this ending. And we could get into all those manuscript evidence, but that's, that's the textual evidence. What about the testimony of the early church? The testimony of the early church is diverse, but with early use in church worship. Here's the point. While the earliest manuscripts don't have this ending, the earliest practice of the church, they did use it in worship. So when they said the Lord's Prayer, just as we said it, they included this ending as a part of their worship. And the way we know that is one of the earliest church documents that's not a part of the Bible, it's just an early church document, is called the Didache, which means the teaching, the teaching of the apostles. And it was written early 100s. You know, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, was written in the 90s. And this was written either in the 90s at the same time or early 100s. And it includes the ending, but it's different than what we have, uh, what we are used to. And here's the ending they have. For thine is the power and the glory forever. It leaves out the kingdom. Well, what about the teachers of the church? The evangelical majority majority decidedly teach it was not part of the inspired original text of Matthew's gospel. Now, you say, why in the world would we be doing this, right? Well, you're going to see in a minute how practical and how relevant it is, but we need to do it because we want to study God's words and not the words of men. It's just as bad to take away from God's word as it is to add that which is not God's word to the Bible. And so we need to be aware of these things and understand. But here's the deal. No matter where you land on whether it's Bible or not, there is an answer that we can all agree on, and it is this. An answer everyone affirms. It is biblical. We may debate whether it's Bible, but it is biblical. And let me say up front, there's only a few places, very few, that this even happens. The two largest passages is John 8, the woman caught in adultery, and the ending of the Gospel of Mark. This verse, and I don't, I don't even, I, I can't even remember if there's even another one. So, you know, you don't have to wonder, you know, there's not like whole books of the Bible in brackets, okay? Okay, there's not whole sections. You don't have to read every verse and wonder if it's there. No, we're going to see this. Here's the answer. It's probably not inspired by the Spirit, but it was definitely in use by the saints. And here's the idea, and that's how it slips in to the, the copies as, as these uh, uh, the manuscript copiers, as the scribes were copying the Bible and copying and copying. They would read the scriptures in church. They would read the Lord's Prayer from the inspired text. They would add this response, and over time, it just gets added in there. 
You say, well, how do I know other things in the Bible aren't added in there? Well, we have so much manuscript evidence. We have more copies of the New Testament than any other ancient document. We have over 7,000 fragments of copies. Okay, we don't have like 7,000 full New Testament copies, but we have 7,000. And like the closest is less, the next oldest document in the whole world is like less than a hundred or something like that. I used to have the number memorized, but it's like, it's ridiculously low. And so because you have those many copies, you can compare against copies, against copies, against copies, and you realize, oh, this is the original. This is what was originally inspired by God. And so the reality is this. This ending is not inspired, the inspired word of God, but it is spirit-led worship of God. And I'll show you why. It's not in the canonical scriptures, but it is a part of congregational worship. And that's how we should use it. It's certainly biblical, even if it's not the Bible. And it's common. It is common for prayers of God's people and prayers we even find in the Bible to end with a doxology. And that's what this ending is. When we say, for yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, we're offering a word of glory to God. You say, what is a doxology, Chris? A doxology simply means a word of glory that makes God look as glorious as he reveals himself to be. Doxology, the first part of this word, comes from the Greek word for glory, doxa. And then ology means a word. It's a word of glory. It's a word of praise offered back to God because of who he is and what he has done. A doxology gives glory to God through joyful praise and prayer in song. Listen, far from not having the Word of God, we have more of the Word of God, not less. We have an abundance of the Word of God, not an absence. So we have so many copies of the Bible, we can be sure of what the inspired text is. We're not missing parts of the Bible. We have more of it than, than what was actually revealed. And so here, let me show you, and I have them in your notes. Um, here's some parallels in the Bible. In fact, this ending that was used by the early church is most like 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 13. So I have it there in your notes. The prayer is a prayer of David at the dedication of the offering to build the temple. They were gathering funds and people had given so much that King David led them in a prayer of thanksgiving to glorify God how gracious he was to provide so that they could build a temple for God's presence, God's glory to come down and dwell in their midst. And so look at that, 1 Chronicles 29. We're going to look at verses 10 through 13. And I'm just going to read that. And as I read it, listen to hear the same doxology that's at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Notice what it says. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, here's his prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, 
our Father forever. Listen, our Father, one of the rare times in the Old Testament mentioning the Father. Our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory. Man, sounds just like it, doesn't it? And the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in heaven and the earth, there echoes, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. There's that universal eternal kingdom, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Oh, what a doxology. And doesn't it sound like the ending of the Lord's Prayer? So it's very common for God's people to end prayer with a doxology. Let's look at Jude 24 through 25, the tiniest, one of the shortest books of the Bible in the New Testament. Here's how the entire letter ends. So sometimes a doxology not only comes at the end of a prayer, but it comes at the end of a book of the Bible. And the Apostle Paul, he would even insert doxologies in the middle of the letters that he was writing. But let's look at Jude 24 through 25. Notice how it begins, verse 24. Now to him. That's how you know it's a doxology. Doxologies begin with to him, giving glory to God. A beatitude is a blessing, and it begins with blessed be. It's a blessing to God's people. A doxology is glory to God. Notice what it says. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Now here comes the doxology. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Aren't you just lifted up? Just reading those, we are lifted up into God's glorious presence. Your heart, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, your heart sings when you hear that and when you read it. And literally, these are often turned into songs, right? These are literally songs. And we could go to Revelation 4. There's this doxology to the sovereign creator in Revelation 4. Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive, there's that idea, to, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And then in Revelation 5, it goes from the sovereign creator to the risen redeemer that we're celebrating this morning. And listen to this doxology. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He gets it all. It's everything to him. And then every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying, here's what they say to him. There's the doxology to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. Listen, listen to me this morning, on this Easter morning. The ending of the Lord's Prayer may not have been handed down by the Father, but it's definitely the heart cry of His children. That's what I want you to see. This is God's children's response to the Lord's Prayer. Now, why would God allow this to happen? Why would He allow this to happen? Let me give you two quick reasons. First of all, to remind us that He is sovereign over the Scriptures. You know, uh, and I'll show you here in this next point. And I'm like, okay, now, now Easter, do I really want to teach? Katie, do I want to teach on Easter on a verse that's not in the Bible? I mean, you know, that's kind of radical. But I'll show you why. First of all, I want you to know it reminds us that he's sovereign over the Scriptures. You don't have to doubt your Bible. You can be confident in a God because his is the kingdom. He rules over how the Bible is revealed and he rules over and makes sure that it is revealed to us without error. His is the power. You know our God is powerful enough to preserve his word from over 2,000, even more than 2,000 with the Old Testament and we have proof from copies of the Old Testament in the Dead Sea Scrolls that are as that are just the accuracy of both the Old and the New Testaments. He's powerful enough to preserve the Bible with more manuscripts than any other ancient document. We don't have, as I said, a lack of God's Word. We have more and are able to know what's there. But also, listen to me, His is the glory. In God's mercy and wisdom, He has made sure that we don't worship one specific translation of the Bible. Instead, the written word leads us to worship the living word. And the revealed word of this Bible teaches us to worship the risen Lord. And I should have made mention when I had those different Bible translations, understand that all of those are accurate to the word of God. And when I show you how they handle this verse, it doesn't mean that like the translators of one Bible version were being heretics or that one Bible version is ungodly. No, it's just to remind us that God is sovereign and he gets the glory. Listen, if you're tied more to one version of the Bible than you are to the God who revealed it, there's a problem with that. Are you with me? And so God allows this manuscript evidence to truly reveal his word, but to keep us humble and realize it's his word that we are to worship. But why would the Lord... Now, let's let's transfer from that to a practical question. Why would the Lord give us the Lord's Prayer without an ending? Do you realize that the Lord's Prayer... If this is true, then the Lord's Prayer doesn't even have an amen with it. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? And here's the answer. To release us to respond with our own heart cry. It's to release us. It's to release us to respond as the church has responded throughout the centuries with our own expression of praise and glory. Listen to me now. Jesus may have taught his disciples no ending, 
because they were already used to ending their prayers with a doxology. I've already shown you from the Old Testament and even in the New Testament that it was common for, for God's people, old and new, to end their prayers with a doxology. In fact, in the Jewish synagogues, where the, the Jewish believers gathered to worship at the times of Jesus, they had 16 standard prayers. And those standard, or I'm sorry, 18. And they were called the 18 benedictions. And do you realize every one of those 18 prayers they said in the synagogue ended with a, a, a doxology or a beatitude that included a doxology. And you know what the most common ending of those 18 standard prayers, you know what the most common ending was? Here it is. Blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. What am I saying? I'm simply saying this. Jesus probably did not provide that ending because it was common for God's people to provide their own ending. Jesus must have intended that the family prayer should climax with such a heart cry, but he left his disciples to fill it in for themselves. And guess what? The church responded, and the church has done that. I love what Don Williams says in his little book, The Disciples' Prayer. It's on the Lord's Prayer. Here's what he says, and I can't say it better than him. The prayer really never concludes. It just stops. It's almost as if the Lord deliberately left it open-ended, as if there was something in it he wanted us to supply ourselves. Some response he wanted our communion with the Father to elicit from us naturally and spontaneously. He goes on to say, The early church was not slow to respond, and their response was worship. In this, they set us an example which has never been bettered. And that's why it keeps getting included. Because you can't really improve on it, but we can express it in ourselves. The traditional ending summarizes the thrust of the whole prayer. And it brings it full circle in three great ascriptions of worth to the Father. His and His alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So here's what I want you to see. Far from undermining our faith in the Bible, the inclusion of this, though it's not Bible, it's biblical, it should motivate your faith to be obedient, to pray this prayer. And as you pray the memorized part that we have, you then express your own petitions according to that pattern and you express your own praise to God. You see, here's the takeaway. Jesus' prayer ends when our praise begins. Jesus' prayer ends when the praise begins. My whole goal in this series was to teach you how to pray the Lord's Prayer. And you know you have prayed the Jesus way when you come to the end and your heart is lifted up to glorify God in this manner. The prayer ends when your praise begins. I like what Kent Hughes says. I have the quote in your notes. This is the song of the heart that prays after the Lord's pattern of prayer. 
This is the church's response. And we have it recorded for us. Now, remember the context when we started 13 weeks ago studying the Lord's Prayer. The context of the Lord's Prayer is Jesus is teaching us the way to pray, not limiting us to the words to say. So we're not to mindlessly repeat his prayer, nor are we limited to using his words. And this ending reminds us of that. So in the Lord's Prayer... It ends when our praise begins. But I want for the rest of our time to talk about another beginning, especially since today is Easter. I want to talk about the ending of the Lord's Prayer and the beginning of the Lord's Day. The ending of the Lord's Prayer and the beginning of the Lord's Day. Now, today is Easter. Amen? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. It's Easter, and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was crucified for our sins, and he rose from the dead to provide us salvation as a free gift. Easter is about Resurrection Day. But do you know, I always cringe at celebrating Resurrection Day once a year because you know we celebrate Resurrection Day every Sunday. That's why we gather on Sunday, because Jesus rose on Sunday. And so every Sunday is Resurrection Day, and that's why it's called what? The Lord's Day. It's called the Lord's Day. When did that begin? The beginning of the Lord's Day was the first Sunday that Jesus resurrected from the dead. It was the beginning of the Lord's day, the beginning of the new creation. It was the beginning of his kingdom coming because the king had risen victoriously from the dead. But what does the beginning of the Lord's day have to do with the ending of the Lord's prayer? And here's the answer. The beginning of the Lord's day makes the ending of the Lord's Prayer, a forever reality. Do you realize that if Christ had never risen from the dead, we couldn't pray the ending of the Lord's Prayer. If Christ had not risen and there was not a Lord's Day, there would not be an ending to the Lord's Prayer. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said on the cross, it is what? finished, paid our sin debt, your sin debt was paid in full on the cross once and for all. And because he said it is finished on the cross, we get to say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And you know what he said after he rose from the dead? He said it at least four times that's recorded. He probably said it more. Over 40 days he appeared. And you know what he always, first words out of his mouth? Anybody know? Peace be to you. And because he said peace be to you, we can indeed say his is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. If he didn't own the kingdom, if he didn't possess the power, if he didn't deserve the glory, then he couldn't say, peace be to you, no matter what your circumstances are this morning. 
So let's look at three ways that Jesus' resurrection makes the ending of the Lord's Prayer a forever reality. So let me give you these quickly, and here they are. First of all, all the kingdoms belong to the Son who is risen forever and ever. All the kingdoms belong to the Son who is risen forever and ever. I want to also say to you that in that Lord's Prayer, in the ending there, the doxology, when he says forever and ever, amen, that phrase belongs to each of the words. His kingdom is his forever and ever, amen. The power is his forever and ever, amen. The glory is his. So we've seen that throughout this prayer. Now, why is... Why is this more than just a prayer, but a forever reality that the kingdoms are his? Let me give you three reasons, and here they are. Jesus' past resurrection proves his kingship. His past resurrection proves his kingship. Now, I'll just give you the other ones too. Jesus presently reigns with all authority in heaven and on earth. And Jesus' future return will reveal his kingdom on earth. You know why we can say the kingdom belongs to the Son? Because he's risen in the past, he's reigning right now from heaven, and he's returning. And when he returns, his kingdom will come, and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, don't take my word for this. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And when you get there, Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 22 through 24. And the reason we're going to go here is because it includes all these ideas. And this is the very first Easter sermon ever preached. Others witnessed of his resurrection. But this is the very first recorded Easter sermon regarding Christ's resurrection. So look at Acts chapter 2. And let's look at verses 22 through 24. Peter, the lead apostle, is preaching uh, to the people gathered there in Israel, in Jerusalem. And here's what he says. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, referring to the Roman Empire, and put him to death. And then there's those two beautiful words, but God. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, not just for Jesus, for anyone who believes in him, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The power of death has been defeated with resurrection power. Drop down to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, referring to him and the other Uh, uh, apostles and disciples that were gathered, over 120. 
Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David, King David of the Old Testament, who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, right there in heaven, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And here's the climax of the sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Christ meaning the king of the Jews. But you know what Lord means? The sovereign Lord over everything. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This Jesus whom you crucified. If you want to look at Romans 1, 4, here's the real simple, real simple statement. The father has declared the son Jesus to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's what I want you to realize. His resurrection proves his kingship. And when he rose, have you ever asked yourself this question? Where is Jesus' resurrection body? Where is his body right now? Where is Jesus right now? His resurrection body is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is reigning over all the world from the right hand of the Father. In fact, before he ascended, to sit at the Father's right hand in Matthew 28, the gospel we're looking at, Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's risen in the past, but he's reigning in the present from heaven. But what's going to happen in the future? He's going to return, and his kingdom will come. And it will be revealed on earth. That's why in Acts 2.34, if you're there, you're still there, look at it. Sit at my right hand. But what does verse 35 say? Sit until. Until what? Until I make your enemies a footstool. And when that happens, you're going to come from heaven and establish your kingdom here on earth. It's just a, a beautiful thing. Listen to some of the passages from Revelation of that coming kingdom. Listen to Revelation 12.10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, the devil, has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Listen to Revelation 11:15. The seventh angel sounds his trumpet and there were loud voices, a lot of shouting in heaven. Okay? And a lot of shouting when the king is about to come. All right? Listen to what it says. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders that are around the throne in heaven fell on their faces and they worship God and they said this, We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. And then turn your Bibles to Revelation 19. Real quickly, turn to Revelation 19 and let's look at what it's going to be like. The glory and the power 
when the king finally comes, when the risen king comes, look at what happens. Revelation 19, 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and the righteous, and in righteousness he judges and he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself, because no one has the power over him. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. His kingdom comes, his justice comes, his righteousness comes, and he treads the winepress in the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now look at verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. Jesus has a tattoo, just to let you know. And here's what that tattoo says. King of kings and Lord of lords. He rose. He reigns. He's returning. His is the kingdom, not ours. His is the kingdom. And you know what's cool in Revelation 8? If we had time, I'd look. Before he comes, the angels takes an incense full of the prayers of the saints and swings it around his head. I add that, but he swings it around his head and he casts it down to the earth because you praying the Lord's prayer, your kingdom, your will be done, brings the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that just awesome? I never get over that. Listen to me, listen to me. His is the kingdom, not yours, not mine. His is the kingdom, not America's, not Russia, not Ukraine, not Israel, not Palestine. His is the kingdom, not your sin addiction, not your doubt and your weak faith. His is the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. And it doesn't stop there. It gets better. Number two, all the power comes from the spirit who is given forever. The Son is risen forever. But I've got good news for you this morning. The Spirit is given forever and ever. And we won't go back to Acts 2, but in Acts 2, what happens is Jesus lives a sinless life. He dies as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He rises on the third day. He ascends to the heaven and the father turns to his son at his right hand and says, here is the spirit of God. Give it to your people. And down comes the spirit of God. The church is born and each believer in Jesus Christ this morning has the son and the Father and the Spirit living inside of you by means of the power of the Spirit of God. Is that not exciting? Resurrection power isn't a past tense event. It's a present reality for God's people. It's been given. And the risen King, so here's your blanks. The risen King gives the Spirit of God to His people. That's Acts 2. That's what Acts 2 is all about. 
The risen king gives the spirit of God. But listen to this. The Holy Spirit gives us Jesus's resurrection power so that we can live in a manner that pleases God. You say, Chris, you don't know my past. I don't have to know your past. It doesn't matter what your past is. You say, well, you don't know what I'm enslaved to right now. You don't know how low I have gone or I am living right now. It doesn't matter. Resurrection power is greater than your sin and your circumstance. Turn to Ephesians 1.18. Turn to Ephesians 1.18. And let's read this verse. Oh, man. Ephesians 1.18. This is a prayer we should be praying along with the Lord's Prayer for one another every day. Listen to this prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. In other words, I hope you will see with spiritual eyes coming kingdom the coming glory your coming place verse 19 but not just what's coming but what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us right now who believe and what kind of power are you talking about paul these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might Well, how strong is God, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. How high is that? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Wow. Resurrection power. To be lifted up, to be delivered out of your sin, to be delivered out of your doubt, to be delivered out of your depravity, to be delivered out or at least through your depression. You have that power in Christ. But we settle for so much less, don't we? We're kind of like that old settler who bought himself a brand new Cadillac convertible. And he was seen a few days later, proudly riding into town, top down, being drawn by a team of horses. John, you like this? This is your kind of illustration. Someone should have told him that there was horsepower under the hood. All the power to move the car was already there. Indeed, more power than the settler could have imagined. And we find that funny because we're like, what an idiot. But you know what? We're the same way, don't we? Because we hitch our lives to the power of our flesh as believers when within us lies resurrection power. No wonder we're exhausted trying to live the Christian life. No wonder we get weary in well-doing if we've got a Cadillac and we're getting it pulled by a team of horses instead of the Spirit of God. Now, why do we continue to do this? Have you ever asked yourself this? Why do I keep living in the power of the flesh instead of the power of the resurrection? Well, one reason is we mistake God's power for our own. 
We think we're the ones doing what only God can do. So we're kind of like the ant that was riding along in an elephant's ear, and he says to the elephant, look how we're shaking the ground. Well, that ant ain't shaking anything, okay? It's the elephants that's shaking the ground. God, look at what I'm doing. Hey, you ain't doing anything apart from me. We think that we have more power than we really do. We're like Muhammad Ali when he was on a plane one time. The steward said, Mr. Ali, you need to fasten your, your belt. And the famous boxer responded, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the wise stewardess looked down at him and said, Superman don't need no plane either. <laughs> and sometimes we think we've got more going on than what we really do. And the bottom line is this. The bottom line is this. We're too proud to ask God to enlighten our eyes. We're too proud to depend on God for our power. Listen to Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. It's a doxology. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, Every time I read that, I think of my friend Ed Scarce who says, we need to pray more and think bigger because he can do more than you can ask for and more than you can think. According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, we could go on, but here's the bottom line. Yours, oh God, yours, the Spirit of God, is the power, not mine. But the ultimate way, the beginning of the Lord's day, makes the ending of the Lord's prayer a reality is this. Number three, all the glory goes to the Father who is proven, proven worthy forever and ever. All the glory goes to the Father who has proven Himself over and over. He proved Himself to the Son of God to be worthy. Think about the life of Jesus. Every step of Jesus' life, He did the will of His Father. He trusted. He said, my Father is worthy of perfect obedience. And then He wrestled with the Father in the garden. And he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And he passed that test and that temptation. And there on the cross, he entrust, entrusted himself to the Father and asked, Forgive them, for they know not what they do, and I deliver my spirit up unto you. And then he rose from the dead and he sits there at the right hand of the Father. Listen, Jesus has proven over and over that his Father is worthy of trust. Amen? Every step of the way, the Father proved Himself worthy of all glory. Every step of the way, the Spirit glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. And there in your notes, here's how all of history is going to end. Now, take a look at this. Here's how all of history is going to end. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also... All will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom 
to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule, all authority, and all power. In other words, He's defeated all. For He must reign until, there's that idea, until He has put all His enemies under His feet. He's reigning now. But the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. Whose feet? Jesus's. And when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted. God is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are in subjection to him, then the son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. That is like a kind of a complicated, weird verse when you look at it, but the overall point is so clear. Jesus reigns until every enemy is put under his feet. He returns, and he's on this earth, and he rules, and his kingdom is here. And then you know what he does? The most unusual thing, he releases power. He submits all of his kingdom to God the Father so that he may have the glory Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Listen to me. Listen to me. Jesus has taught us to pray the family way. And when we pray Jesus' way, we end up saying, Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Forever and ever. Amen. Listen. Resist the temptation to put yourself at the center of your life. Jesus, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit is the only one that deserves to be there. Amen? I want you to look at this video. We'll end with this. And I want you to see this, and I want you to think about your relationship to the risen King this morning. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. 
He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah. That's my king. That's my king. Amen. Woo. Do you know him? Can we, man, can, can we dance in church? Even Baptist kids. If you can't get excited about that, that's my king, and he can be yours. And when he's yours, your heart sings with the doxology, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And God's people say what? Amen. 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 Take the last sheet one more time and make it your own. If you can't make this lesson your own, then you just need to get saved on this Easter. Okay? And that's all right. What better day to accept Jesus than today? Let's pray to Him. Father, we bring to You, may Your name be made holy. Lord, may your kingdom come and may it come soon. And Lord, may your will be done in our hearts and on this earth as it is in heaven. Father, you are a great provider, but we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. That's the greatest provision, your written and living word. And Father, this Easter you died on the cross so that our sins are forgiven, and that we can be a forgiving people. And Lord, the devil is defeated, so lead us as far away from temptation as possible and deliver us each day from the evil one. For we know that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. 